This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Well, I hear that sermons are supposed to start with something profoundly gripping, profoundly thrilling. So I'll start with Father Matt Woodley. <laughs> he said something really wise at the start of our series on Romans that we should hold tight and carry with us throughout this whole series and farther than that. <laughs> Father Matt said that justification doesn't mean that we're forgiven and therefore free to go. Instead, or quite the opposite, justification means that we're free to come. We're free to come to God in Jesus Christ. And this is gospel good news, the best news we will ever hear and ever could hear. So our passage today is Romans 6, 1 through 11. And you can find it on page uh, 942, I believe, in your pew Bibles, and I encourage you to do that. This passage draws us deeper into what Father Matt meant. And that's because right here, Paul tells us what we're free from, and therefore, what we're free for. His goal is to show us why the gospel truly is the power of God unto salvation. That's how Romans 1 starts. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and how God truly does make us new creations. This is how Paul pulls it off. He shows us that baptism plunges us into the transforming reality of the gospel, and that's precisely because baptism plunges us into Jesus Christ himself. So today we'll talk about what baptism is, what Jesus Christ's relationship is to our baptism, and then what baptism says about us, or we might even say this, the gospel, what is the gospel of our baptism? What gospel does baptism preach to us? So before we get to our text, we need to clear away a common misconception. It's that the goal of the gospel is to enhance natural human life. That Jesus Christ has come to make the life that people already have just a little bit better. This isn't Paul's message. He tells us that the gospel imparts new life and new life of a different order the life of God, Zoe life, right embedded in, bios life, the life of God and the life of us. So, on the front end of every life-giving encounter with Jesus Christ, there must be a death. This isn't bad news that we have to endure to get to the good news of the gospel. This is good news. It's our only hope. And this isn't mere theory for Paul. It's the revelation of God that seized upon him and shaped his own lived experience. Remember, before Paul was the apostle, he was Saul the Pharisee. And Saul's resume was impressive, right? He was educated, credentialed, competent, successful, respected. Saul was a high achiever. Saul was a winner. And Saul was without the life of God. According to his own testimony, Saul the Pharisee had to encounter Jesus Christ and die so that he could live as Paul the Apostle. What's true for Paul is true for me and true for you and true for all Christians. The life that we now live is the fruit of the death we died. And so what our text gets us at today is the reshaping, reordering power of the gospel makes it such that death doesn't conclude life, as in the natural order. Death precedes life. 
Okay, let's look at Romans 6, beginning with verse 1. Paul asks us two very direct, very pointed questions here. And his first question is this, what shall we say then? We'll say to what? What shall we say to what? He's referring us back to Romans 5. And that's what we've been focusing on together for the past couple of weeks. This is what Romans 5 tells us. God has put an end to the tyrannical rule of sin and death. Now, grace can reign in righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. But then Paul follows up and he recoils as he does it. He follows up with the unthinkable. Are we to continue in sin that grace abounds? Is that, is that to be the response? Are we to continue in sin that grace abounds? His answer is absolutely, positively not, right? Emphatically, no. Cures don't perpetuate diseases, and all of us know that. Yet Paul's also getting at something more subtle here. He's eager to disabuse us of empty, impotent notions that can masquerade as the gospel. Let's call them fake gospels. Fake gospels that can't do anything but leave us to continue in sin. The aim of fake gospels is often to improve our intellectual or emotional or moral states. So they tend to be heady and therapeutic and activistic, but not a whole lot more than that. The problem is that the flesh can be educated, can be moved, can be modified, and it can be motivated to do better things more often, all the while remaining flesh. So remember what Jesus said uh, to Nicodemus, that which is flesh is flesh, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Fake gospels tend to operate on the assumption that Christ died for us so that we ourselves don't have to die. But if we don't die with Christ, how can we rise with him? And if we don't rise with Christ, how can we not be left in sin? In this case, our Lord would be a substitute who dies and rises in our place, and that's good because he most certainly is that but he wouldn't be a substitute in whom we participate. And this is what I mean. This is what Paul's getting at. We couldn't be included in his death so that we die. And we couldn't be included in his life so that we live. And if that were the case, who would Jesus Christ be? He'd be a remote representative, right? Distant, inaccessible to us. His death and resurrection could inspire us, but it couldn't transform us. We could be admirers of Jesus, and we might even be doers for Jesus, not new creations in Jesus. Fake gospels declare news that just isn't that good. They miss the gravity of our predicament, so they miss the purpose and power of God's remedy, and Paul will have none of it and wants us to have none of it. He knows there's better medicine, and he knows that our deepest human need isn't to improve our old self. Right? A shined-up, souped-up old self is still a fallen self, born in sin and enslaved to it. Our old self, says Paul, right here in Romans 6, our old self needs to be brought to nothing. That's the, that's the purpose of the gospel, to bring our old self to nothing. Paul wants to disabuse us of fake gospels and make us gospel realists, we might say. So, he points us to the most basic truth of our existence, and it might not be what many of us would anticipate. 
Should you continue in sin? That's the question. Of course not. That's Paul's answer. Of course you shouldn't continue in sin. How could you? You've been baptized. Now, why on earth does Paul say that? Of all the things he might say or could say, why does he say that? And when was the last time that you pointed to baptism as the apparently obvious answer to a struggle with sin or temptation? Of course you can't. Of course you can't do that. You've been baptized. We might ask this question. What does Paul know that we need to know better? The term baptism means to immerse. And it's a funny word. It's not a translation. It's a transliteration. It's just the Greek letters just come right over into English for us in, in the ESV, the Bible we're using today. That it means to immerse. And don't miss what Paul says here in verse 3, chapter 6. The reason it's unthinkable for the baptized to continue in sin isn't because we've been immersed in water. We surely have. It's because we've been immersed in Christ. Paul couldn't be clear here. All of you who have been baptized have been immersed into, he says, immersed into Jesus Christ. What is baptism? Immersion into Jesus Christ. Okay, right here, there's a potential interpretive hazard alert. Hazard alert. Paul isn't saying here that baptism pictures some other salvation event or experience, however meaningful those might be. Something else that happens somewhere else. When Paul says baptism, he doesn't mean not baptism, in other words. When Paul says baptism, he means just that, baptism. And what he's telling us is that baptism isn't just a sign. It's not just that. It's a sign and a seal. That is, baptism isn't just a sign, an empty thing, a sign without real substance. Instead, baptism is a sign that affects what it symbolizes. Much like a wedding is a sign that seals the reality of two becoming one. It's a miracle. And Paul tells us exactly why this is true. Because Jesus Christ makes himself present to us in baptism. And not as an observer, but as the primary actor. We're baptized into Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the one doing it. Now think about it. We can no sooner be immersed into Jesus Christ apart from Christ than we can get wet apart from water, right? Jesus assures us that apart from him, we can do nothing, nothing worth doing at least, right? And surely this applies right here to baptism. So what Paul wants us to grasp is that baptism couldn't promise or do anything apart from Jesus. Baptism isn't the practice of pondering an absent, abstract Christ. That would be a sad thing. It's a visible, tangible assurance of what God is doing in our very midst. In other words, baptism points us to Christ as baptism binds us to Christ. It doesn't just picture our salvation. Baptism gives us Christ, and baptism preaches Christ, who is our salvation. That's what Paul's getting at. So the whole of this text, Romans 1, I'm sorry, Romans 6, 1 through 11, is about our baptism. And yes, it's pretty obvious. Our baptism has everything to do with us. But this is just as clear here. Paul's focus isn't primarily on us. It's on Christ. Now, you can count these later if you'd like, or better, just trust me on it. 
Paul makes 18 references to Christ right here in these 11 verses. 18 references. He's Christ besotted. He's Christ preoccupied here. So let me say it again. Our baptism has everything to do with us, but it's first and foremost about Christ. Now, why in the world is that? We've already touched on a couple of reasons. First, Jesus Christ, the presence of Jesus Christ is what makes baptism baptism, right? He's the primary actor in our baptism. And second, baptism preaches Christ. And if you haven't thought like that, I encourage you to do it. Baptism actually preaches Christ. It's a form of the gospel. So if baptism preaches Christ, we, could, we should expect Christ to, preeminent, to be preeminent there. Jesus Christ is preeminent in all apostolic preaching, right? That's what Paul's getting at. Jesus Christ is preeminent here. But there's more to consider. Now get at it like this. The great Blaise Pascal puts it like this. He says, we can only know the meaning of our life and our death through Jesus Christ. I want to say that again, let it soak in. We can only know the meaning of our life and death through Jesus Christ. That's precisely what Paul's telling us here. Now we, you and I, we live in a culture that preaches self-definition. Don't believe it. That's just a fake gospel of another sort. You and I aren't self-explanatory. That's not what it means to be a creature of the Creator. We're not self-explanatory. We're not self-referential in that sense. We're not the source of ourselves, and we're not the arbiters of meaning. Jesus Christ has preceded us in death and resurrection, and therefore He, Jesus Christ, determines the meaning of our dying and our rising, and he does it by including us in his dying and his rising. We know the meaning of our death in life as, it, as we're included in Jesus Christ's death and life. The same is true of your baptism. Jesus has preceded you in baptism, and therefore Jesus' baptism is what gives meaning to your baptism and my baptism. So let's explore this just a little bit. Last Sunday, we looked at the latter half of Romans 5. Paul talks there about Christ's one act of righteousness that leads to life for many. Amen to that. But we don't want to reduce this one act to any isolated event in our Lord's ministry, or we'll miss the point here of what Paul's saying in Romans 5. When Paul talks of this one act, what he means is one majestic, sweeping, integrated movement of God's saving action of Jesus Christ that spans from eternity to eternity. In just a few minutes, we'll confess the Nicene Creed, and you'll see just that right there. The many facets of Jesus' ministry are gathered up, they're couched up and headed up right there in the Nicene Creed with this, under this one integral phrase, for us and our salvation, ellipsis. For us and our salvation, what? The eternally generated one was born conceived of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Spirit, and on we go, right? This one majestic, multifaceted, integrated, saving action of the triune God of the gospel. Well, it's true. All that Jesus Christ does is for us in our salvation. All that he does in his incarnate ministry, he does for us in our salvation. His office, if you, if you can say it like that, it's not a private one, right? For us in our salvation. And since the topic today is baptism, let's stick with that language, the language of immersion as we press in and think about this a little bit. 
We've been immersed into Jesus Christ in baptism. That's what Paul's telling us. We've been immersed into Jesus Christ. So let's ask this question and think about it together. If that's the case, then what has Christ been immersed into for us? What has Jesus Christ been immersed into? To know this is to know the meaning of our death and our life, and therefore to know the meaning of our baptism, because the substance of baptism, the stuff of baptism, is death and life. So think about this. When Jesus was born, the Word became flesh. He was immersed into our human existence. He was immersed in it. Our sorrows, our fears, our tears, our pain, our disappointments, life east of Eden, we might say, and all that that entails, Jesus Christ was immersed into that. He touched it. He didn't just come as an observer. He immersed himself in it. Jesus Christ entered the Jordan River, and there he was immersed into an anointing with the Spirit. Jesus Christ was, for his messianic ministry, anointed by the Spirit to carry that out. And right there in the Jordan River, he received his baptismal identity. He was immersed into a baptismal identity. And what did he, what did he receive? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus Christ received that baptismal identity. And remember, right after that, he swept out into the wilderness, brought into the wilderness by the Spirit. And what, you know, those three great temptations, how did they start? If you are the Son of God, right there, right, right at the baptismal identity, that's what Satan contests. And don't miss this. Jesus ties his baptism at the Jordan to his death at Golgotha because he calls Golgotha his baptism. James and John, you know the story. Who gets to sit at, who gets to sit at the right hand and the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is, this is what our Lord says. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, that could, you, you could read that in such a way that it sounds like a threat. It's nothing of the sort. It's the promise of living hope. What is true of me will be true of you. Jordan and Golgotha, they stand at two opposite ends of Jesus' earthly ministry, his public ministry, we say. They're two facets of one baptism. Jesus Christ works out that baptism from Jordan to Golgotha. And think about it, at the Jordan, what happens? Jesus Christ is immersed into his identification with sinners. Scripture tells us that the baptism at Jordan is a baptism of repentance. Jesus is the perfect penitent. He's the perfect penitent. Not for his own sins, right? But he's not just doing a, a, a this isn't a piece of theater either. Jesus Christ is so identifying with his wayward people and their sin that he identifies with them in their repentance. And by the way, if, if our repentance isn't a, isn't a repentance into that perfect repentance of Jesus Christ, then all your repentance is is a condition that keeps throwing you back upon yourself. You'd have to repent of your repentance and repent of your repentance of your repentance before you give up or go to Walgreens to get help, right? Jesus Christ is the perfecter of our repentance. He's the perfect penitent. He's immersed into his identification with sin and sinners. 
And at Golgotha, he's immersed into judgment and death as our sin bearer. Bears our sin to bear it away. There, at Golgotha, Jesus Christ put off what, call, what Paul calls the body of the flesh. He put away what comes from sinful Adam and comes to us from sinful Adam. Now, careful here, right? Not human nature, but the defect of human nature, east of Eden. Not what God made and called good, but what we've made of it that isn't good. Right? The body of the flesh is put off there at Golgotha. Jesus Christ comes in flesh to put off the flesh. And through this very death, not any death, this one, this very death, the risen Christ is immersed into the new life he brings right out of the old. We once regarded him according to the flesh of Adam. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, but no longer. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruit of the age to come. He ushers us into a new age, it's gospel age. The head of a new humanity, the new humanity. In other words, Jesus Christ is the new creation in person. There's one cross, there's one empty tomb. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that there's one baptism. Not many, one. The Nicene Creed echoes this. We'll confess it together in just a few minutes. What are we going to do? We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Whose baptism? Whose baptism? That one baptism is Christ's baptism. And Christ's baptism is the pattern and the power for our baptism. Our baptism is nothing if it's not a participation in his. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 6, and this is good news. Okay, so what about our baptism? Let's think about it. What, what does our baptism do and say to us? Take a good look at the font. We've got a at Church of the Resurrection. We've got an amazing object lesson. It is gorgeous. Don't miss this. It's sturdy. It can take a lot of a lot of pushing on it, right? It's not going anywhere. This thing doesn't bend to the spirit of the age. It's there. But what is it? What does it preach? What does that font preach? It's a word of God. What does it preach? If baptism preaches something else that happens somewhere else, in other words, if it's only a sign, you know what that font would be? It would be a monument. It would be a monument. There would pledge faith in an absent Jesus for past exploits, right? We'd honor him who died so that we don't need to die. That's not what the font is. <laughs> Praise be to God. Jesus Christ has gone before us. He's lived our life. He's died our death. And he's transformed everything he's touched along the way. At the font, Jesus Christ gives himself to us. And not in any way, but he gives himself to us in a very specific way. He gives himself to us in the undimmed, unfading splendor and strength of his crucifixion and resurrection. Right? Who does Paul preach? Christ and him crucified. That Christ, right? That's the Christ that gives himself to us at the font. So on the one hand, what is that font? Well, that font is our tomb. It's not a monument. It's a tomb. 
It's where Jesus Christ bids us to come and die with him. Paul says, we're buried with him in baptism. We're buried with him in baptism. We share his grave. And there he deals the death blow to our old self. He applies the cross to us. The death blow to our old self, our flesh, our sin and shame, our guilt and doubt, our pride, our despair, our temptation, all that was born in us from sinful Adam and all that we've so readily (laughs) added to it. It's submerged in that great flood. Think Pharaoh and his chariots, right? Submerged there. But that's not it. At the same time, that font is our womb. It's our tomb, it's our womb. We've been reconceived in holiness there. We've been reborn in the new Adam. Now I know it's true. Sometimes all of, sometimes we do feel like we know a lot more about dying with Christ than we do rising with him. I know that feeling. Maybe you feel it acutely today. Dip your hands in the font. Sign yourself with its water, this Christ's own. Bind yourself to your baptism and bind your baptism to you. It preaches living hope that heals and cannot die. Paul Paul says, promises that if we share Christ's grave, we most certainly share his empty tomb. Now think about this. Existence in the old Adam is from life to death, and that death is a death in sin, Paul says. But your existence in Jesus Christ is a death to sin, to life in God. That baptism, that womb, heals and cannot die. It's gospel medicine. It's staggering. It's true. Even when you and I don't feel it, even when the circumstances of our life are such that we can't feel it, we're free to grow. And what it means to share in Jesus Christ, knowing and loving the Father and the Spirit now and forever. We're free to partake in the life that Jesus Christ lives. The death he died, he died for us, to include us in it. The life he lives, he lives for us, to include us in it. But what are some of the things that constitute that life? We're free to partake in the love with which the Father loves the Son. It's yours in Jesus Christ. The Father doesn't love us because of the Son. The Father loves us in the Son. Very different. You're free to partake in the delight that the Father has for the Son. You're free to live without the fear of condemnation and separation. That's the stuff of Romans 8, weeks down the road. Why? Because we're accepted in the beloved. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, says Paul. We're free for that. And it's true that someday all of us will fall asleep in Jesus. Our baptism doesn't contradict that. It actually fortifies us for that. Paul's quite aware of this and, in fact, has done it. And ever the realist, Paul calls it not loss, but gain. 
Paul calls that gain. The reason's right here in Romans 6. The death Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. So what does that mean for us? Our passing will not be, cannot be, a perishing, right? You know that great John 3.16 verse, right? We're not going to perish. Our passing cannot be, will not be a perishing. We will never descend into an abyss that undoes us. Jesus Christ touched that death. He touched that one. That's the death that he touched, and he transformed it. So your baptism is intended to help you face your passing, to not live in fear of that, and comfort you in that very hour. Your baptism preaches to you in the hour of your death. Right? It's gospel good news. What does it tell us? This will be a homecoming, a promotion, right? Jesus Christ has transformed it. It will be a homecoming to an even deeper divine embrace. Everything must subserve your salvation now, even that, even that. Okay, so let's tie a few things together. Paul's real clear, isn't he? We should not con continue in sin. You got that? We should not continue in sin. Well, then what should we do? What should we do? What's the last verse there, Romans 6, 11? What should we do? He says this. What must we do, in fact? Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In light of all of this, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Consider. That word carries a, a sense of know it, believe it, Act accordingly. Know yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Believe what's true about you. You're dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Act according to the truth that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So we can put it like this, maybe. Remember your baptism. Remember the reality of your baptism. Remember the transforming power of the gospel and believe the gospel that your baptism preaches to you. The key to remembering your baptism is knowing that you never move past or beyond it, right? Big, big mistake we can make. We don't simply look back on our baptism as a major event of yesterday, yesteryear and the reality of baptism isn't over once we get dry. It's not what baptism is. Instead, we live into and out of our baptism. See the motion there? We live into, we live out of, out from. Our baptism with the power of Jesus Christ's cross and empty tomb at work in us. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ aren't merely things that motivate us at an emotional or intellectual level. The cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ train, change and transform us right now remember our baptism. What does that mean? The Christian life has a distinctly baptismal pattern and shape to it. The whole of the Christian life has that. That, that, baptism, that baptismal font is the datum point that shapes your whole Christian existence. That's why we renew our baptismal vows together at every baptism. There's one baptism, right? There's one baptism. We're not observing them. We're participating in the one baptism. We always do. That's what the Christian life is. That's why you should see every Eucharist as a renewal of your baptism. That's what it is. 
Now, just a couple comments about the gospel that baptism preaches. Baptism preaches the gospel. First, believe what baptism tells you about your identity. Jesus Christ has received a baptismal identity for you, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven to do what? Among other things, to receive a baptismal identity and to receive it for you for the express purpose of sharing it with you. Now the Father says to you, each one of you, me and you personally, you, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. In Jesus Christ, you really are, says baptism, a child of God, a temple of the Spirit, a living member of the church. Baptism signs and seals it all. This is who you are, is the gospel of baptism. This is where you belong. This is what God says about you, and you are exactly who God says you are. You are exactly who God says you are. Finally, believe what baptism preaches about your struggles. Our baptism ushers us into a new time. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He introduced a new time. Some might call it, it's gospel time, right? It's that. Um, we might also call it the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. It's a time we're called to inhabit. But it comes with a tension that we ourselves can't resolve. The goal is not to resolve this tension, it's to inhabit it faithfully. What's true of us? We're new creations in Jesus Christ right now. Yet we groan with all creation for God to make what's now true fully manifest. That's what Christian hope is, to hope for the full manifestation of what is true now, the now and the not yet. This is a prominent theme for Paul right from the second half of Romans 6 all the way through Romans 8. So next week, Father Steve Lake's going to preach. He's going to pick up right on that. Paul's going to talk about struggle. It's going to go all the way through Romans 7 and all the way through Romans 8. What is Paul getting at? Carry your baptism into those struggles, right? Go into those struggles armed with the gospel of your baptism. So we'll be hearing much more about that in the weeks to come, but for now, know this. It's no coincidence that this theme comes right on the heels of baptism. That's because baptism doesn't make us immune to struggle. We're free from bondage, dominion to sin, the world, and the devil. So only now are we free to truly struggle against them. We're free to struggle. Remember, struggle doesn't mean succumbing, right? Struggle means contending. We're free now to struggle against these things. And in that sense, baptism actually begins this struggle. The presence of this struggle doesn't contradict the reality of your baptism, it actually confirms it. So listen to the gospel that your baptism preaches amid the struggles of life that all of us are too well acquainted with, right? What does baptism preach? Your past no longer controls you. Your past no longer controls you. It might harass you, it does not control you. Those claws, right? The weight you feel there are the dead hands 
the past. They don't control you. God has made his future your future. If we live in the now and the not yet, our future is a living into the future that God inhabits and that God has determined and God made. God has made his future your future. That's, what, that's the gospel of baptism. And right now, you have what you need because your baptism gives you Jesus Christ. Your baptism gives you Jesus Christ. So in his darkest night of the soul, darkest nights, plural, I should say, Martin Luther was fond of saying, devil, I've been baptized. Devil, I've been baptized. Of all the things Luther might have said there, right? Why that? Devil, I've been baptized. Because he, he got it. He got it. He got it deep in his core, deep in his bones. Baptism is the basic truth of our existence. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.